The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, If you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding 
or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In the episodes to date, we have examined and answered 38 questions regarding supposed Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. In this episode, we continue to help Mr. Ash with his various questions regarding the veracity and consistency of God's Word, the Bible. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, Do the dead get resurrected or not? In order to construct this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Job chapter 7, verse 9, quote, Consumed hath been a cloud, and it goeth. So is he who goeth down to the grave, and cometh not up, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this to John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, which says, quote, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, and they that hath done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that hath done evil unto the resurrection of damnation." Unquote. Here, once again, Mr. Ash finds a contradiction because he has not bothered to educate himself regarding the Bible or the literary considerations of the Bible. The first issue is the Hebrew word Sheol, which gets translated as quote-unquote grave in the verse in Job. This incorrect translation is a common misnomer, which in turn creates the apparent contradiction in question. Correctly understood, the word Sheol refers to the intermediate state of every person's soul-slash-spirit after each person physically dies. When people die, the Bible reveals that the physical body goes into a grave, a tomb, a sepulcher, or some other physical location. At the same time, prior to Christ's atoning work, that person's soul-slash-spirit went into Sheol in one of two compartments or dimensions. In the case of those who, like Abraham, died in faith in God, God counted their faith as righteousness, and they went into paradise, or Abraham's bosom, which is generally in an area called Sheol, where they were comforted. For those who died in rebellion to God, 
they died and their soul slash spirit went into either Gehenna or Tartarus where they were tormented in an area also generally referred to as Sheol. During Jesus' atoning work, Jesus descended into Sheol slash paradise slash Abraham's bosom where he relocated its occupants and or the entire compartment along with its occupants to a different reality and or dimension or location. After Jesus' atoning work, those who died or die, died or die in faith in Christ, have their physical body go into the grave, a sepulcher, or a tomb, while their soul-slash-spirit goes immediately to be present with the Lord. Those who died or die in rebellion continue to go into Gehenna-slash-Tartarus in a general area referred to as Sheol. During the final judgment at the end of the world, God will resurrect everyone's physical body and will reunite their physical body with their soul-slash-spirit. The righteous, those who have a relationship with Christ through faith in his finished work, i.e. the sheep who hear his voice, who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, will have already been judged in Christ and have been found to have his righteousness. These inherit eternal life and joy forever. The unrighteous, i.e. the goats, those who deny Christ, are judged in the white throne judgment according to their own works and are found to fall short according to Romans 3. These have their physical body and or their soul slash spirit cast alive into the lake of fire where they are tormented day and night forever. For more information on this, along with the arguments that support the above from the Bible, I would direct those interested to the nine-part episode entitled Death, the Intermediate and Final State. The second consideration in Job chapter 7 verse 9 is the Hebrew word Allah, which gets translated with the phrase Quote, shall come up no more, unquote. However, the Hebrew word Allah can also be translated, quote, to be elevated or exalted, unquote. Hence, if we assume that Sheol, in part, is an area where the unrighteous, rebellious souls go after death, then we can also rightly conclude that in the overall scheme of God's redemptive plan, these people have had their chance. They have rebelled, disobeyed, and dishonored God during their life. They have descended into Sheol to begin their consequences of their conscious suffering, and at the end of the world, God will resurrect them in order to judge them, and then, finding them guilty, according to Romans 3, God will cast them into the lake of fire for their final consequences of eternal suffering. So, yes, in keeping with the correct translation of Job, this group will not be elevated or exalted 
because only those who have a faith relationship and trust in Christ and his finished work can be exalted and elevated because of what Christ has done. This explanation and analysis fits perfectly with John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, which says, quote, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, unquote. Hence, once again, using proper hermeneutics, exegesis, and discernment, we see that rather than a supposed contradiction, we instead have a harmonious agreement. Next up, Mr. Ash asks, Why did God bless Abraham if God prohibits marrying one's sister? Unquote. In order to construct this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following verses. Genesis chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. Quote, and Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, unquote. Continuing, Mr. Ash also sees Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 and 16, which takes place before the above incident, and reads, quote, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and I will give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her." Unquote. Mr. Ash then compares the above to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, where it says, quote, If there is a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He hath uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt, unquote. Additionally to this, uh, we have a Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 22, which echoes Leviticus saying, quote, Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen, unquote. From the above verses, Mr. Ash then concludes that Abraham committed incest when he married his quote-unquote sister, and despite Leviticus and Deuteronomy which forbids this, God nonetheless blessed Abraham. Hence, according to Mr. Ash, there is a contradiction the Bible is not inspired, and God does not exist. However, we should point out several issues which Mr. Ash neglects to address. Number one, to begin with, 
the prohibition against marrying one's quote-unquote sister or quote daughter of his mother slash father unquote found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy were not codified as law until 400 to 500 years after the incident with Abraham. So I highly doubt that even Mr. Ash would suggest that we hold people today legally responsible to be punished for laws which get passed and enacted 500 years after the supposed violation of that law. In keeping with the account of creation, we know that all humans descended from Adam and Eve. So at the outset, from the point of creation, it would be necessary and permissible, even obedient to the command found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, which says, quote, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth, unquote. In order to accomplish this, Adam and Eve's descendants would by definition have been required to marry and have sexual relations with members of the opposite sex who were to one degree or another close relatives. While today this is a genetic problem which is likely to create deformities, we must remember that the closer we return back to Adam and Eve and their descendants, the purer the genetics would have been. This is largely because the effects of sin. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve and everything was, quote, very good, unquote. However, after Genesis 3 and the onset of sin, we would expect to see a progressive deterioration in the genetic DNA of man. As a result, it would be logical that with an increase in the availability of potential mates and the growing increase of man's genetic defects, that it would be necessary for God to eventually institute the law found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy to prevent the potential consequences of biological abnormalities. Number two, the Hebrew vocabulary of the Old Testament does not have the technical specificity of today's English language. While we have the English words cousin, niece, uncle, grandfather, etc., the Hebrew vocabulary has much greater latitude with general terms such as sister and brother. In point of fact, the term quote-unquote sister can encompass relationships including niece, sister-in-law, or cousin. In order to get more information as to which is the correct modern word, we would have to look at the earliest historical records to get more information. For example, Flavius Josephus, the first century historian in his Antiquities of the Jews, wrote in chapter 6, verse 5, quote, 
Now Abraham had two brethren, Nahor and Haran. Of these, Haran left a son, Lot, as also Sarah and Milcah his daughters, and died among the Chaldeans in the city of the Chaldeans, called Ur, and his monument is shown to these to this day. These married their nieces, Nahor married Milcah, and Abram married Sarai, unquote. The earliest Jewish commentaries also clarify that Sarah was in fact Abraham's niece or cousin. If in fact Sarah was a niece or cousin, then neither relationship would violate the law of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Number three. Lastly, Mr. Ash is upset because it is said that God blessed Abraham and Sarah in the face of a supposed glaring violation of the law, albeit 500 years later. Well, to begin with, if God followed the letter of the law and withheld his blessing from anyone who was not 100% perfect 100% of the time, then the only person who would ever have qualified for a blessing would be Jesus. Romans chapter 3 clearly tells us that all have sinned and that none hath done good. No, not one. So the reality is that when God chooses to bless, he does so in spite of our shortcomings. In this case, Paul makes the case in Romans chapter 4 regarding Abraham, concluding, quote, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, unquote. In other words, Abraham wasn't perfect, neither is anyone else. But in spite of Abraham's many errors and mistakes, as well as ours, if and when we, by God's grace, exercise faith and trust, as did Abraham, in God, and ultimately in the finished works of Christ, we, like Abraham, have righteousness imputed to us. As a result, we are blessed by God, even though we ourselves do not deserve or merit it. It is a gift. So once again, if we go beyond superficial glances at the Bible and actually do our homework, there are often any number of ways that with correct hermeneutics and exegesis of Scripture in its full context, these supposed contradictions do not exist to begin with, and if they do arise, they and our questions will be resolved by doing so. In this case, we see that there is no contradiction, only a lack of proper scholarship and research on Mr. Ash's part. For the next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, Should we expect good or evil from God? Now, 
I am sure that playing devil's advocate, we could help Mr. Ash out and come up with dozens of verses which ostensibly demonstrate a supposed contradiction. However, the verses which Mr. Ash has chosen are these. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2, quote, A good man obtaineth favor of the Lord, but a man of wicked devices will he condemn, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this to Job chapter 2, verse 3, which says, quote, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause." Unquote. From these, Mr. Ash then creates a logical fallacy uh, that one verse demonstrates a law in which God is bound to always and only provide nothing but blessings when, when men are quote-unquote good. In the other, Mr. Ash thinks that Job represents millions, even billions of people who are quote-unquote good, but despite being good, God punishes them for the sake of having nothing better to do. So, what is the answer? Well, since Mr. Ash can't be bothered to do the research which he claims is the backbone of fact-finding, let's help out. First and foremost, it should be remembered that Proverbs is a book which fits within the genre of wisdom literature. Proverbs consists of general sayings, maxims, Hebraic poetry, Jewish Hebraic wisdom regarding the human condition with and apart from God. As usual, the ideas and literature found here must be viewed within the understanding of the entire Bible in context. To begin with, the phrase, quote, a good man, unquote, needs to be placed within theological context. If and when we do so, Romans chapter 3 and countless other verses reveal the reality that in God's eyes there is no such thing as a quote-unquote good man in the sense that any man other than Christ can perfectly please God 100% of the time. Instead, we must understand that what this verse is saying is that those people who by God's grace are able to sincerely seek after and serve God will ultimately receive God's favor since it is God who initiates and brings to fruition the deeds which are a natural outcome of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. In other words, Man was and is created to be God's image bearer. Apart from God, that image is marred by sin. However, given God's grace and a new nature by his indwelling Holy Spirit, our nature again begins to progressively become conformed to his. 
Thus, when we exhibit God's nature, God cannot and will not be displeased with his own likeness because God is perfect. The next word, quote-unquote, favor, is a poor choice of words if we assume that, quote-unquote, favor is defined as God granting man favorable, good, and pleasurable circumstances here on earth at all times. Instead, in context, a better word would be, quote-unquote, acceptance, Acceptance does not infer some quid pro quo relationship where whenever man thinks that he has done quote-unquote good in his own eyes, that God is now forced to provide only favorable and pleasant circumstances which are agreeable to the one supposedly doing the quote-unquote good. No, once again, a biblical understanding would tell us that the reality that since there is none that doeth good, no, not one, and that we have all sinned, then by all rights, if God gave us what we deserved, then we would one and all be rightly guilty of death and hell. However, at theological length, according to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2, and all scripture in context, when we are in Christ Jesus by grace through faith, we have his righteousness imputed to our account, and Christ's finished work is not only quote-unquote good, it is perfect. When God the Father looks at his Son, his reaction is always, quote, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased, unquote. Thus, those who are in Christ cannot help but have God's favor. On another level, we must realize that both the quote-unquote good, those who are in Christ, and the quote-unquote wicked, those who rebel against God, all have a certain level of God's grace. Jesus himself reveals in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, quote, For he, I God, maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust, unquote. Were this not the case, then none of us could look forward to any kind of benevolence on earth. It would all be suffering and punishment. However, because God hath created an ordered universe, even though creation is under the sway of sin, the general rules of creation still have power. In this case, generally, when mankind does the things which God has commanded and ordained, then generally the logical consequences of benefit follow. When mankind rebels against what God has commanded or ordained, then generally the logical consequences of condemnation follow. At the same time, regardless of the apparent inequities which man believes exists here and now, ultimately the here and now is not the final state. 
the final exam or the final result of man's choices. Ultimately, the final state where every man's thought and deed is judged and rewarded or punished is in eternity. Thus, we cannot presently judge supposed inequities as being good or bad. Only eternity can demonstrate what was and is just. Once we have a proper handle on Proverbs, we must then understand the book of Job. Job is a book which, while it may be historical, whether it is historical or not, the book of Job deals primarily with the issue of those who are godly living within a fallen world. Job provides a behind-the-scenes look at the ongoing cosmic war between God and Satan as a result of Genesis 3. Job is the archetype of all those whom God has called and chosen to be his own. The problem of understanding Job begins with Mr. Ash's priori bias assumption that all men are quote-unquote good. As a result, whenever Mr. Ash designates himself as quote-unquote good, then God becomes a monster whenever and wherever and quote-unquote evil befalls man. Even here in Job, the idea that Job or anyone else is quote-unquote good on their own merits gets reinforced by the Hebrew word tam, which gets mistranslated as quote-unquote perfect some seven times in Job. However, rather than the theological error that Job was quote-unquote perfect in his righteousness, standing before God based upon Job's merits. Rather, the word tam should rightly be translated as, quote, complete and or upright in a moral sense. So the real idea is that because God has called and chosen Job, Job, like Abraham, trusts God completely and lives according to that trust and awe of God, which in turn God counts as righteousness. This is always the case, whether we're talking about Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, or any person then or now. In the midst of this, because of Genesis 3, mankind abandoned the covering grace of God by listening to Satan and thus opened the door for Satan to use our nature of sin and a fallen world to constantly seek to kill, to steal, and destroy us. On the one hand, Satan seeks to tempt us by any means to sin against God. On the other hand, we fall into his temptation. Satan then accuses us before God. This is the plot which we see in the opening lines of Job. Essentially, Job is a story whereby God pulls back the curtain to reveal the everyday spiritual battle which is underway between Genesis 3 and Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Mr. Ash's problem is that he does not believe in the reality of spiritual things. Mr. Ash does not believe in God or Satan. 
If Mr. Ash is going to allow for God's existence, then God must always be doing what Mr. Ash deems appropriate. If God exists, then according to Mr. Ash, God should be making my life always pleasurable right now. I should be rich and never sick. I should be full and never hungry. I should be happy and never sad, angry, unfulfilled, or anything negative. Everyone should be equal and everything should be fair. As always, Mr. Ash thinks he should be in charge of defining all these terms and judging whether they are achieved or not. But Mr. Ash will not allow for the truth that it is man who, by virtue of his rebellion then and now, who has empowered Satan to have power and dominion. It is man who has brought sin, war, inhumanity, and evil. In the end, as we look at Job, just like God's redemptive plan of salvation, Mr. Ash only looks at the here and now with the sin which man has brought and shakes his fist at God to accuse him. Like Job's wife and friends, Mr. Ash's solution is to Quote, curse God and die, unquote. However, God is not primarily about the pleasures of the here and now. God is primarily about the eternal, his glory, not the appearance of Mr. Ash's whims. Like the end of the book of Job, God is glorified and justified as righteous in the end. Job, the type of all who have a relationship with God by grace through faith, is restored and given double what he had before as reward for his faith. At the same time, those like Mr. Ash, who wag their finger and tongue at God to accuse him, are cut off and judged by virtue of those who, like Job, trust God despite the circumstances of the here and now. So, the answer to the question, should we expect good or evil from God, is dependent on each individual's perspective as guided by their relationship or lack thereof with God. If you don't know God or in rebellion to Him, then you should expect what you deserve, which is death, hell, and separation from God. If by God's grace you have been drawn to a saving faith and relationship with God, then regardless of the circumstances here, good, bad, or indifferent, you have the assurance and promise of eternal joy and fellowship with God and all tears and sorrow will be wiped away. Thus, once again, with a proper biblical world and life view, there is no contradiction here. If there is a contradiction, it is only between the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must at all costs deny God in order to justify himself, 
and the mind of those who have been renewed by God's grace to understand that God doesn't do a thing because it is good. God does a thing and it is good. In all, to date in the series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 41 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in Him. I will trust in Him.